Hi, I'm Michael Imperioli. I played Christopher on The Sopranos. You're listening to Pada Bing. I'm Vic Singh, and you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that breaks down every episode of The Sopranos one at a time. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get shows. And if you like what we're doing, please spread the word. If you'd like a pictorial and caption companion to the podcast, follow at Pada Bing on Instagram. And as always, thank you for listening and being a part of this amazing and surreal journey with us. This is a conversation I had with Michael Imperioli, who played Christopher Moltisanti on the show. Michael joined me in studio for a lengthy conversation about his work on the show, both in front of the camera and behind it as a writer. He also shared a glimpse of his musical taste, other interests, and philosophies. There's no other way to say it. This was a big fucking deal for me. It happened fast, and I wished I had a little more time to prepare, but the truth is, I've been preparing to talk to him for a long time, in my mind at least. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, and I feel humbled and privileged to have had the opportunity to make it happen. But I gotta say, I'll forever have this image in my head. Michael waking up, showering, opening his fridge, talking to his wife, who asks him, what are you up to today? And part of his response being, I'm driving down to West Hollywood to talk Sopranos with a guy named Vic. And her response being something along the lines of, can you pick up some groceries on your way back in? As sure as the sun will rise, I will never get over the notion that I was on Michael Imperioli's mind for a moment and that he made time in his life to come down to the studio and indulge my questions with grace and wit. All right, I said my piece. At long last, here it is, my conversation with the great Michael Imperioli. So, Michael, thank you for being here. It's a pleasure and an honor. Scorsese and Chase, how are they similar and how are they different? Mm. Well, they're similar in that they're both very, very smart, very talented. Um, I would say the similarity is the attention to detail. Um, which, now I worked for Marty only two days on that movie, but as a fan, you know, and knowing the type of work he does and the commitment to authenticity and the commitment to research, that he's a real master of detail. I also, after I did Goodfellas, I actually worked in his development office in the Brill Building in New York, and I had a couple of jobs. One was answering phones. One, he, His office is actually on a different floor. The development office was, I think, on the third floor. The other job I had was to go through every newspaper. Now, this is 1989 or 90 or something, before real internet. Every newspaper, every week, uh, and cut out all the reviews of every single movie that came out. Documentary, feature, anime, everything. And put them in a scrapbook because Marty wanted to know every movie that was out and coming out. And the other job was uh, he had his video collection was on that floor next to our office. And 
a lot of people in the industry, directors and producers and writers, would come and borrow movies from Mario. It was like a video store. I mean, it was thousands of movies that he, some of which I think he actually transferred from his collection of prints. Some were movies that were very hard to find in video stores. Someone who approaches his, you know, his area of interest with that much attention to detail um, is very impressive. And now I worked much closer and for much longer with David Chase. And as a writer, particularly, I learned about detail from him and that the devil is in the details and that the attention to detail... Because when you're writing something and when you're really connected to it, you're, you're consciously and subconsciously aligned with the material. So when you choose a detail as a writer, it's not random because your psyche's tuned to the story and to the character. So nothing's by accident. So you, might, you may think you're just plucking something out of thin air, but there may be a very resonant symbolism inherent in whatever detail you're choosing. The difference is... Very specific difference, right? Uh, Marty was really into improvisation. Almost every line... I think the only line that wasn't improvised of mine and Goodfellas was Go Fuck Yourself, Tommy. Everything else was different every take, improvised. On The Sopranos, there was zero improvisation. Everything was very, very, very tightly scripted to the point when if actors who were used to improvisation came on came on the set and thought they were going to do that, they learned very, very, very quickly that that was not the case. I've heard a few stories Mm -hmm. in that regard for people that were not regulars on the show. So you had done a lot of movies prior to The Sopranos. When you got the call about the show, were you dubious about it? Did you think that TV was a step down at that point for where your career was? I had done um, mostly independent movies in theater. It was how I made my living in my 20s, mostly. Um... I had done a few big movies, a few Hollywood movies, um, and worked with some good directors. I had done some guest spots on television, like uh, Law & Order and NYPD Blue, uh, New York Undercover, uh, you know, kind of mostly New York police drama stuff. The casting people, Sheila Jaffe and George Ann Walken, had cast me in films before and had become friends, uh, so they would always bring me in on anything I was remotely uh, right for. The thing about Sopranos was, first of all, there there hadn't been much cable series. I don't even know what was on by then or what HBO was doing series-wise. So that was an anomaly in itself. The idea of doing a mob show that was kind of a comedy threw me a little bit because there was so much humor in the pilot that I wasn't sure, well, which way is it? Is this a spoof? There was... A really bad movie made around that time called The Don's Analyst. I think Robert Loggia, who was on Sopranos, I think he was in it. But it was a it was a bad, I think like a bad version of Analyze This. this but before that. So my worst fears was like it was going to turn into that. Look, when you, I had never done a series as a regular, right? So every job I had before that, be it a play, a movie, or a guest spot, you read a script and decide if you want to do it or not. Now you're reading one script and deciding if you're going to do 100 or 200. So it was very, di- you know, and it's it's hard to really judge from the pilot, from the pilot script, where that, the wide scope and latitude that the show was going to explore. How did the pilot resonate with you when you first read it? It did not knock my socks off. I did it. I liked it, but like I said, I wasn't sure. I wasn't really sure of the tone. 
because I wasn't sure if it was going to go more into comedy or more into drama. I, I like the idea. There was a cleverness to it, but I can't say I looked at it and said, this is a masterpiece, this is a home run and a masterpiece, it, because it it's a small part of the whole, really. What I was impressed by were the cast that they were putting together, many of whom I had worked with, like Edie, Vinnie Pastor, Tony Sirico, Ventimiglia, Lorraine. So you felt um, a comfort. I felt a comfort on a level of talent, and I had known James's work. I had never met him, but I heard a lot of good things about him. I saw... By then, probably True Romance, and he was interesting. I think I saw him in On the Waterfront, uh, because a friend of mine was in that. I went to see him in that. I don't really remember him in it, but... So I'm like, okay, this has some good pedigree. And then I auditioned for David, and I thought he... I thought he... I thought I bored him to tears, you know? Why? Because David... Well, I didn't know David at the time. David's very poker face. He's not a very... You know, until you get to know him... He's one of the funniest people I know, but until you get to know him... You know, he's very kind of stone-faced. And he kept giving me notes to do, you know, and do the scene again, which sometimes I interpret as I'm not getting it. I'm not getting the right, I'm not doing it the way he wants. And I walked out of there saying, well, this guy's not even Italian. What does he know about Italians? And this is a TV show on HBO. It's probably never going to go, so don't worry about it. And then I get a call that they want to fly me to L.A. to uh, test for HBO. So you get to L.A., and they fly you there, put you up in a hotel. And now you're going to go audition for, like, 10 executives. But in the waiting room was Edie Falco, who was auditioning for Carmela, Lorraine Bracco, who was auditioning for... Melfi. They had decided on her at that point. Me, yeah. There was no one else auditioning for those three parts. My part, Lorraine's, and Edie's. But for Tony Soprano was James Gandolfini, who I didn't know. I don't even think I recognized him. Michael Rispoli, who played Jackie April, who I did know really well, who was a good friend of mine and someone I, whose work I love. And this other guy who I kind of looked familiar, but I c- couldn't place who he was. I'm looking at his face, and I'm like... Have I met this guy? Who is this guy? I know this guy. And then Sheila takes me aside and whispers, that's little Stephen Van Zandt with the Silvio, you know, hair and everything. So he didn't have his, you know, the little Stephen look. He was Silvio. But he was auditioning for Tony. The three of those people, Michael Raspoli, Jim, and little Stephen were auditioning for Tony Soprano. And then I went in and auditioned and then... The rest, as they say, is history. There were no other Christophers in the running? I don't... There were before... I don't think they... I could be wrong. I don't think they tested anyone else. Did you read for anybody besides Christopher? No. Okay. Christopher's name was Dean Moltisante in the... Pilot. Original. Originally, then they changed it. Interesting. Uh, Christopher had pace when he walked. um, An acceleration. Was that intentional? Where did that come from? Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, you had a pep. Yeah. Christopher had a pep in his step. <laughs> Christopher was based on a person that I know um, who doesn't know it was based on, who I'll never tell that I was based on, and I've never told anybody who it was based on. But when I got the role, and he had some run-ins with organized crime, but he wasn't a gangster per se. He wasn't a made guy. He wasn't a gangster. He wasn't really a criminal, but he, he and he escaped that, you know, that kind of life. But it really was only for the pilot where I found that center of gravity, which was a kind of almost a, a very heightened sense of reality. Like this guy 
behaved in a way that almost seemed like bad acting, My this person that I knew. there was a, It's almost like, are you for real? Which was a bit of a, chan- a risk, you know, to base a character on that. But um, it just felt right. Now, after we did the pilot, we came back a year later to shoot the rest of the season one. I probably never thought about that again. I never thought about the guy. I never thought who I based it on. The character was already kind of set for me. You know, the parameters. Through the writing. No, no, through my choices through that I had choices. made in the pilot and finding that center of gravity and who he was and his rhythms and his, you know, Cadence. levels. Yeah. That leads to my next question was, what was your process for transforming into Christopher on a daily or weekly basis? Did you have a routine or was it simply a switch? Um, I have real ritualized things I do when I work. Like I wind up doing the same thing every single day. I, I the thing, the way my dressing room is, the way I start my day, when I get dressed, when I don't get dressed, when I eat, when I don't eat. It's very much, I like that because it's, it's a way of liberating, you know, making decisions so you just focus on the work, right? So you don't have to worry about, you, you know where every, what everything, how it's going to go. I find having those routines very liberating and, and help you focus. So for me, it became a switch, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. It felt like it. I mean, you just, yeah. I mean I've listened to a lot of your interviews and I've seen a lot of you post-Sopranos and Christopher and Michael Imperioli are very different people. That's why uh, it's, I hope you know, so. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how soon in the process did you go to David Chase to convince him to write for the show? How early in the game did you mm. start to build that scaffolding? Well, I fell in love with the show. So, so when, now we get picked up. We shot the pilot in the summer of 1997. Around now, December of 97, a bunch of us, me, Vinny Pastor, Sirico, I think Frankie Vincent, we were working on a movie, a TV movie that De Niro produced called Witness to the Mob with Nick Turturro about Sammy the Bull. And while we were doing that movie, we got picked up for a season, which was very exciting. Uh, so then the summer of 98, we start shooting season one. And... Script after script, I started getting blown away. That's when I knew we were onto something. Because the scripts got more interesting and deeper and more complex. And the canvas got wider and the scope got wider. And it was, I, By the end of the first season, I was in love with the show. I was in love with the writing. I was in love with every character. I had already been writing... I spent a lot of years writing stuff that was a bunch of garbage, and then finally... Uh, That's how you build your way up to the good stuff, right? Yeah. Then finally I finished the script with a, a writing partner uh, named Victor Calicho, which was Summer Sam, which we brought to Spike Lee, that he directed. So the first season of Sopranos and Summer Sam was shot at the same time. So when the premiere came out, 99, I invited David, and in between season one and season two, I wrote a spec script. Uh, which had Christopher ODing on dope and then having this vision of the afterlife. And David read it and he liked it and he saw Summer Sam and he said, this is really good. I like your work. We're planning on Christopher getting shot so we can use a lot of this stuff in the episode. So a lot of that stuff was from my spec that got put into From Where to Eternity. So you had, which the, is you had the built-in goodwill already and it made it easy. Yeah. To, yeah, I mean, he, you know, and um, 
And that was how I started writing on the show. The dream sequence Christopher describes in that episode, you know, how um, he sees uh, Mikey and Brendan. They tell Tony and Pauly that they need to watch out for 3 o'clock. Did you want there to be like an actual dream sequence like so many of the other episodes in the show? Or was it always going to be just you retelling the Mm. dream? There might have been one in the early draft of the script, but maybe it didn't work or something. I like dream sequences, and I and I like stuff that's uh, mystical. Were there any storylines for Christopher that you wanted to write, but that got left on the cutting room floor? Mm. I think there was. You know, I can't really remember because sometimes you, um, in the writing process, writing is on a TV show. There's a collaboration to it because when you're breaking stories together and you're figuring out where sometimes. One storyline, because usually every episode had an A, B, and a C story, right? And you may start, you may break an episode and you're going to, okay, I'm going to go off and write A, B, and C. And then you realize, you know what? B works better in episode five that so-and-so is writing. So I'll take his C and make that my B, something Uh. like that. Sometimes that happens. Um, I can't remember. I'm pretty, I'm sure there were stuff that I, that, you know, you, you spitball or you... I don't think there was anything that was actually written or, or shot and went into production that was cut, though. What character was the hardest to write for? Mm, that's a good question. You've got good questions, man. I got a lot of questions, so I'll take every time you give me I answers. don't know. I mean, I really loved uh, writing for all of them. You know, what made it easy to write was that I think the, it's harder to write for me, right, for Michael. This is not a rule. Um... It's easier for me to write when I can see the actor and hear the actor, right? So if I'm writing for Edie, if I'm writing for Jim, I can hear them saying the lines and I can see how they're going to react or something. So now when you're writing a character that hasn't been on the show or hasn't been introduced, that's a little bit more challenging to me. Uh, I wrote and directed a movie called The Hungry Ghost that was written for almost every actor that wound up doing it except for one or two, I think. And... um, that's something I really love to do. I love to really be able to write for people that I know or that I know who's going to do it. That's um, probably a bad way to approach things because usually you don't get your way. But if you're on a TV show, of course you do. But uh, um, In my own head, when I, when I think about you, I always imagined that writing for Dr. Melfi would have been the hardest because you never had any scenes with mm. Lorraine Bracco. Is, that, is there any truth to that or is it no. actually more liberating in a way? No, it's, you know, Lor- different. Lorraine created such an indelible character and her her rhythms and her vibe was very clear, you know, because I was, you know, watching the show. Right. So so I, I um, tried to just relate to what she was doing. Art and lighting and optics are significant parts of the presentation of the show. Even the most ordinary everyday things, and this is the stuff that we perseverate on on the podcast, even the most ordinary everyday things are presented in a visually stunning way. What were the discussions about those aspects of the show that you were privy to as a member of the writer's room? The presentation, the visual presentation of the show. Well, to be honest, that does not necessarily make its way into the writer's room very much. You know, you're much more focused on story. You're much more focused on character dialogue, story points. Some of the episodes, I was producer on set. So if you write, if you wrote an episode, often you'd be producer on set. What does that mean? 
Well, you sit next to the director basically and make sure that the script gets executed the way it was meant to, which is not the most comfortable position to be in because you're basically kind of looking over the director's shoulder. And um, uh, so it's a little bit of a dance, um, you know, not stepping on toes to do that. But for the most part, it would be more about making sure the dialogue was executed properly. It wouldn't be so much like uh, chiming in on visual choices or, you know, lighting choices or that kind of thing. So have you watched the show end to end? Yeah, but not for a very long, not probably since it was on the air. I think I st- uh, my youngest son started watching it a couple of years ago, and I remember sitting and watching part of one episode. With ju- him? Yeah, and just being really pleasantly surprised. What episode did you watch with him? I don't remember. It was one of the first season ones. I remember, but I, just, I would love to get your son's reaction to watching you on yeah. the, the Tennessee Multisanti episode in particular. I don't know if he saw that one yet. But I remember just uh, being really blown away by how good the acting was. Not, I don't even think I was watching my, I'm not saying my acting, but like uh, I remember John Ventimiglia was in that episode I was watching and Jim and uh, Edie, just the level of acting alone. Forget about even writing and directing and everything, which was, you know, magnificent but the level of acting was just spot on what's your favorite episode and why i have a few favorites i think white caps which is an episode when you know that one right when tony and carmela kind of breaking up they buy this house summer house down the shore but that that's like almost like a cassavetes movie to me you know the way the writing of that episode and the acting and the way it's directed um it's just so close to the bone and so it's really like you're eavesdropping on these people's, you know, really intimate moments of their life. I mean, it's, I think, a remarkable piece of work. I, I think that might be my favorite. You just got into my head in a very crazy way, and I'm trying to hold it together here. Um, talk a little about the days leading up to the finale. Did it feel like a graduation, like a funeral, like sending off a kid to college? Mm. What were the emotions personally and as a group? Well, can, you, can you relate yeah. it to something that like, the average person can kind of get a sense of? Mm, it's like The Last Waltz. Did you, did you see The Last Waltz? It was Scorsese's movie about the band. It reminded me of that a little bit because it's... I'm talking about the airing of the last episode, not even so much the shooting, because I, I wasn't in the last episode. But we, as as a group, a lot of us did... On our off season, we'd go to like casinos and do soprano events, you know, and take pictures and, you know, with high rollers at casinos and we would hang out. It was very like rat packy. Us on, you know, we'd answer questions and be interviewed. It was it was a lot of fun because we'd travel together and hang out and get drunk and do all these crazy things. It was fun. And the airing of the last episode was a Sunday, like always. And we had done an event in Foxwoods Casino, Connecticut on a Friday. It was kind of like a farewell tour almost. We went to Atlantic City, I think the Borgata. And then we took a plane to Sunday morning. We took a plane to, we took a private jet, all of us, uh, to um, Florida, to the Seminole Casino in Hollywood, Florida. And we get to the event. And there were thousands of people there. And they made this red carpet that I guess was like a maze, but there were thousands of people. We were really not prepared. And 
it just went on and on and on and people screaming and and it was really weird like we were not that had never happened before you know you go to we had season premieres in new york at the zigfeld and there would be fans and stuff but this like was first of all in hollywood florida second of all it just the line went on and on and there were so many people there thousands of people it was crazy and we were like whoa and then we went in and did like a dinner and we did a Q&A on stage and all this stuff. And then it was 9 o'clock, and we went into a private room, just the cast. Everyone else had to leave. And we start watching this show. And, I, you know, what you realize is it's not just the end of the show. It's the end of a part of your life when you were very close to a group of people that you liked being with. I always akin to working on the show is like walking down the street and hanging out with your friends every day. And this was not going to happen anymore. So the end of the show, those last frames, was also the end of this chapter of your life. So it was very bittersweet and very moving. And then it all went to black. Beautiful segue. Have you seen a more conflicting, and, and again, you've been asked this question, everybody's been asked this question. I tried to find a way around the actual question and, and, and phrase it this way. Have you seen a more conflicting ending before or since the show? No. Of course not. No way. It's I mean, it's, the, it was, it's um, on a Mount Rushmore by itself, right? Yeah, and it should be. I mean, I thought it was great, and I, I, even in that room, half of us were like, "What the fuck?" And other half was like, "Oh my god!" You know, um, David is never someone who, if you watch the show and big significant things, never really had closure all the time like i also besides that the other question besides the ending the other question i get asked all the time is what happened to the russian i'm not going to ask you that today the but... pine barons episode right yeah. so the russian does reappear in one scene in a deli and he's almost like brain damaged you know right so there is kind of a closure on the russian uh but there would have been no way to create a closure for that show that would satisfy everybody was david in the room when you watched the final no. episode I don't think he was there. It was just actors. So it was like, you know, what, if he killed all his enemies, if he gets killed on screen, if the kids get, you know, what would make people happy? Nothing. But, and I think that's, I think that was a brilliant, brilliant choice. I always, I always have. Episode nine, season three, Telltale Muzadel is one that you wrote. My pizza never hurt nobody. Come again? It's a great line from that, the pizza shop owner, where they're trying to find out who uh, defaced the school. Oh, right. Um, you wrote about Buddhism in that episode. Oh, right. And Buddhism is something that has become a very big part of your life, if that's fair to say. Mm, yeah. You've given to charities that focus on creating... I became a Buddhist in 2007. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, so I was getting to that. <laughs> you've you've uh, given to charities that focus on creating schools in Tibet. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember the moment or the book or the conversation that put you on this path? Um... Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche's uh, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism, that that book. But I, I was kind of a spiritual seeker for a number of years um, and read a lot of different types of spiritual and esoteric and mystical kind of things until I really connected with Buddhism. But that book in particular uh, has been the door to Buddhism for a lot of people. What are some key takeaways from Buddhism that you've internalized? Um, if you were to give me like a Buddhism 101 yeah. right now. Well, the, the teachings of the Buddha can be summed up in three very simple sentences. One, do no harm. 
which is also the Hippocratic, the first part of the Hippocratic Oath, which is interesting. Do no harm. Two, cultivate a, a, a wealth of virtue, meaning do good. Be generous, be kind, be compassionate, be loving, be, you know, honest, be patient, right? And number three, tame this mind of ours. So find ways of looking at your own mind and working on it because that's where, you know, it's from our own mind that we make choices and we react to the world, we interact with the world and with others. So the more you get familiar with it and how your mind operates, the better your ability in theory is to... um, it's much easier in theory than it is in practice. The easier it gets to behave the way you want in the world, right, and be more positive. Eastern philosophy and traditions were contrasted with Catholicism throughout the series. To me, it always felt like the juxtaposition played into the themes of ambiguity, uncertainty, and to quote the show vis-a-vis William Goldman, nobody knows anything. What do you think inspired this comparative religious aspect of the show? And was it also part of what kind of got you on this path as well. Oh, I think that was David's interest in, in the world, really, that got him um, uh, interested in exploring those things. No, my, my interest had already been awakened in that direction in certain spiritual disciplines of the East and certain philosophies from the East. Um, nobody knows everything. I don't really agree with that. By, by any means. I think a lot of people know a lot, actually. Nobody knows anything until they start to know things is a better, I think, interpretation or, you know, of that. I'll take that. Season four, episode three, episode Christopher, which you also wrote. This was an episode where Bobby was really fleshed out as a character. You and Steve go way back, like you mentioned earlier. Did you intend for this episode to be a sort of coming out party for Bobby? Mm. Was that part of the plan? Uh, Steve and I actually met on the show, but we've become best friends. He did your movie, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I see Steve all the time, so we, we, we're very, very close. And we became close on the show. You know, I think one of the great things about Sopranos is that it had a very deep bench, you know, like a sports team. It's like you can go to the bench and get really good results. Yeah. You know, by the bench, I don't mean, you know, a secondary. I mean, you know, supporting player and and find a whole storyline you know a wealth of storylines that's going to be really interesting to a lot of people and you know getting to know steve and know what 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 he was capable of as a person and seeing what he was capable of as an actor uh, you know made me want to write uh, more for him yeah season four episode six everybody hurts another episode that you wrote um the one where gloria kills herself was the Billy Joel song at the end, Scenes from an Italian Restaurant, was that your choice? No, that's, I think that was David or the director. Probably David. Yeah. So you weren't thinking of that song in your head? No, I was not. Although that made a lot of sense. So. I, I wish I could take credit for that, but I will not. Real quick about Adriana. Did Chris value loyalty over love when he told Tony about Adriana, or was it fear? I think it was fear, and it was, in many ways, a very just self preserving instinct and i think ultimately when tony kills christopher is another example of that at the end of the day these guys are it's about them you know with chris he you know there's that scene when they're at the gas station and he sees like what his life maybe could have been some guy with a mullet and kids and 
they're kind of poor and drive a shitty car and that was stuff. A switch. And, he, and yeah, so he's like, oh, I don't want that. If, if we go on the lamb together and drive out west, and what am I going to have? I'm not going to be able to be a gangster somewhere. Else. You know, he wasn't really. You know, you know, he wasn't Sammy the Bull. He's not going to go out and start muscling his ways in you know in in you know crystal meth land or something. And he just realized it was better for him to side with Tony. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's kind of sad to say that, but I think that's that's the reality. And he did love her, and he did believe in love, and he did believe in loyalty, but, you know, Michael Cohen said he would have taken a bullet for the president. Look where we're at now. At the end of the day, who's he worried about? Not the president. Talk about 3 o'clock from your vantage point. How did it become such a focal point of the show leading up to the finale? And what were those initial discussions like? <laughs> I don't really know. I wish I could say. I have no idea. You were there. No one was just talking about 3 o'clock. I don't this, remember. I that. don't remember why we brought, you know, why 3 o'clock. It's everywhere. What? It's all over the show. Yeah. Always. Yeah. Persistent. I guess once it became introduced as a certain trope or theme, you know, then it's like, oh, okay. So now we can, you know, I don't think it was plotted to, you know, in se- by season two when it was introduced, plotted to last till and have significance at the a- end of the episode. I doubt it was that thought out. It so you don't see the members only, Mr. Members only coming at Tony's three o'clock? You don't see that as the silver bullet? I don't remember. I don't know. No, you have to ask David that question. But um, what I'm saying is when the theme is introduced, I think then you can say, okay, we can, we can, we can bring this along and, and let it have resonance in different places, but I, I don't know if it was a grand design that way. I think a lot of the show, there were some elements that David wanted to explore, and there, I'm sure there were storylines that he was clear about, but a lot of it was letting it evolve on its own and seeing who was bringing what to the table, both as actors and writers and directors, and, 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 and let it, you know, it had a certain momentum of its own, I think that at the same time, you're designing it, you're going from both ends. You're doing it from a kind of omniscient designing end, and you're also kind of seeing what this creation is that's growing in front of you, and then working those two ends together. That's my instinct. I could be wrong. Okay, so you were nominated for two Golden Globes and five Emmys for your work on the show. You won one Emmy for the fifth season. In your speech, the last person you thanked was John Cassavantes, someone that you just mentioned a moment ago, whose work I became familiar with through his passion for music. That's a big moment. Why was he the last person that came to your mind? Uh, Because, you know, at the time he was a really big inspiration to me as an artist. Um... And uh, I felt that he'd been overlooked a lot. So I thought, well, if I can say say anything, you know, I I felt kind of a debt to him in a way as an artist because he was really, really, really inspiring to me and still is in a lot of ways. I mean, I I would say he's my favorite filmmaker and his... um, For those that are uninitiated, a lot of young people listen to podcasts. What are one or two movies? John Cassavetes? Well, A Woman Under the Influence... Opening Night, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Faces, Husbands, Love Streams. That's a handful. Um, They're unlike any movies I've seen up until and even after. I think he and some of the great performances by actors. Uh, Jenna Rollins, who was John Cassavetti's wife, starred in a lot of his movies, particularly 
opening night and a woman under the influence. Opening night, she plays an actress, a, sta- a famous stage actress, and a woman under the influence, she plays a housewife who's going through like a nervous breakdown. And she doesn't really do much in terms of accent or look or makeup, you know, or, you know, external changes besides the, you know, whatever wardrobe was required to delineate the characters. Yet I can't imagine two different characters in cinema. I mean, it's kind of amazing what she does. And John Cassavetti's movies really buck convention in a lot of ways in terms of what we're used to in terms of pacing and in terms of storytelling. You know, when I first started seeing his movies, there was a retrospective of his work at the Anthology Film Archives in New York in the East Village. I'd probably say around the late 80s, early 90s. And a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers and actors went to see these movies because they were very hard to see. The only movie that you'd see a lot on TV was Gloria, which he kind of made for the studio's I, I don't even know what I you can't kind of it's his movie, but it's not it's not a movie he had complete independent control of, which is what he used usually did when he because he financed his own, most of his own movies. But um, they're unlike they're unlike anything else. And and I went to see these films for the first time, like Opening Night, Women of the Influence. I remember they had the effect of like a dream where you're not sure of how much time passed uh, while you're watching it or how much time has passed since you've started to watch it where normally in a movie here's the beginning here's the you know rising tension here's the you know middle of the movie where you're not sure where they're going to go and here's the falling then here's the you know you kind of you know you, you kind of have a sense of where you're at in the film his movies you can't tell if you're at the beginning and the, this is even after seeing them a couple of times some scenes go on for a really long time much longer than they probably should have in terms of what a normal film or Hollywood film would be. And some don't. I mean, and but you really feel like you're experiencing something, something very intimate, like I mentioned in, in Whitecaps. So he and I had gotten to work with a bunch of people that worked with him, worked with him very closely, like Seymour Cassell and Ben Gazzara and Peter Falk. And Cassavetti is almost, in, a lot of people thought all his movies were improvised because they really feel like that. They, they don't feel like writing. They just feel like people in a room hanging out. And these actors told me that they were pretty tightly scripted films. And for that reason, he's really underrated as a writer because everyone thinks of him as this like verite guy with a camera and just filming these actors improvising. But it really was actually very tightly scripted work. So that's why I mentioned John Cassavetti. And I will today. You wrote a book recently called The Perfume Burned His Eyes about a boy, uh, forgive me for taking liberties with the synopsis here, but it's about a boy who lives underneath Lou Reed. Yeah, he moves from Queens, blue-collar life in Queens, and his mother inherits some money after his father and grandfather die, and they move to this posh apartment building, and Lou Reed is living upstairs, yeah. You said Lou Reed was your biggest hero of all time. Mm. Why? Can you parse that? As an artist, I mean, a hero as an artist because uh, most of my heroes are artists, I guess. Uh, Because, first of all, what he did was so groundbreaking, uh, which was basically invent punk rock uh, and alternative rock music and 
bringing a literary sensibility to rock and roll in a way that no one had really done before, in a very different way than Bob Dylan did. Uh, and secondly, for really being very courageous in terms of who he was as a person, you know, and not being afraid to express that through his work and just through his honesty. And the fact that throughout his life, he was constantly pushing and creating and doing new stuff. And he never became just a nostalgic nostalgia act who would go on the road and do the hits or whatever, but he was always finding new ways of expressing himself through his music mostly, but also through photography and writing. And um, he, uh, you know, his, his material, you know, as someone from New York, his material really resonated to me, you know, with me. The book's cover looks like a Smiths album. Yeah. Was that, that intentional? That was the intent, yeah. It was. The Smiths are one of my favorite uh, bands. Morrissey's one of my favorite. I actually thank Morrissey in the acknowledgments I saw of that. the book. Yeah. Uh, I actually saw the Smiths on the Queen is Dead tour in 1986 in New York. So, um, But I, I just love the cover art. And when I was thinking about what, a, what it should look like, I always had that in mind. And I was... Uh, I remember reading a New York, New Yorker magazine article right after Dennis Johnson died. They, they had printed one of his short stories from his last collection. And that picture was, you know, at the top of the page. And I was like, that should be the cover of the book. And I tracked it down. It was a, a photographer from Chicago who died a number of years ago, published a book called The Age of Adolescence, from the uh, photos of teenagers in Chicago in the late 50s, early 60s. And we found the gallery, and we made a deal with them, and we got to, uh, we got to use it. So I was Amazing. Really I saw, I remember seeing the book at Book Soup when it first yeah, came out. Yeah. I didn't know that you had written a book at the time, but I saw it from afar, and I thought, oh, Morrissey wrote another book. And then I got closer oh, and I saw, cool. yeah, that's, that's how I first kind of came to know about your book. And then I saw, read the connection. I saw the connection to Morrissey as well, which is, which is amazing. I have a couple of questions about that in a moment. Um, so again, like I mentioned, podcasts have lots of young listeners, as I'm sure you already know this. What two to three Lou Reed songs must anyone who hasn't been initiated listen to? Mm, okay. I'm a New Sensations guy, personally. New Sensations, yeah. Well, my favorite Lou Reed album is not really an album. It's a live recording called Take No Prisoners, which is from the bottom line in New York over a couple of days in, I think it was 78. Could be wrong. Could be 80. And uh, I would say just get that and listen to it because it'll give you a real interesting perspective on who he was because he talks through half of the album about a range of topics and plays with his persona a little bit. But the, there's versions of songs on that album that he performs with so much passion and intensity that it's mind-blowing. But, okay, so... What's your heavy rotation? Uh, Blue Mask. Blue Mask is really a big one. Uh, Rock Minuet off the Ecstasy album is a really big one. And Romeo Had Juliet, which is where the title of my book comes from, off the New York album. Heavy Rotation, Morrissey slash Smiths. Oh, okay. Speedway. Uh, Life is a Pigsty. Um, something is Squeezing My Skull. Rush Home Ruffians. Headmaster Ritual. Paint a Vulgar Picture. Big Mouth Strikes Again. That's, that's a great song. 
What she said, what difference does it make, hand in glove. You and David are both music heads, clearly, as we've just established. Did he ever recommend a song to you during your time on the show that you remember to this day? Did he do stuff like that, I guess, is the first question? Well, there's that great song he uses by... Now, I forget the name of the song. It's in that episode when, uh, I think it's called The Ride, when when he's at the feast and Christopher's at the feast and he's like high and it's that's I think it's that song the dolphins or something what song is that oh, it's not coming to me right now it's a song from the 60s we have to look this up because it's a really good song that I had, I had never heard but I thought it was really really cool okay um I was just wondered that like he's was, was he the de facto music supervisor on the show I think so. I think Stephen Van Zandt as well. Was. They just like talked songs? I think so, yeah. My favorite one, the one that's seared in my memory for all eternity is uh, when uh, Tony and Carmela, Carmela says, look, I've just about had it. I'm going to Paris. And Niels Lofgren, the Black Book song comes in. It's a live oh, recording. Yeah. And the guitar on that song. And Tony just kind of like, it's just an amazing fade to black. Um, and the, the choices, it's like, how'd they come up with that? You know, it, I, I'll never get over it. Good taste. Good, good taste. <laughs> yeah. What memory of James Gandolfini will forever be seared in your mind? Mm. Well, there's a lot, but when we shot the pilot, I think it was my first day and I didn't know James. One of the first scenes, maybe the first scene we shot together as when we're driving in the car chasing down this guy who owes money or something like that. And I didn't know how to drive. And I had to back this Lexus down the sidewalk with trees on one side and extras getting out of the way and do dialogue with Tony Soprano, which is actually not, I do drive now. That's a hard thing to do even if you know how to drive, let alone if you don't know how to drive. And I did it a couple of times, and then we did it. The last time I did it, I smashed into a tree. And I was convinced I was going to be fired. I thought this, you know, it was. I kind of hit it pretty hard. I totaled the Lexus. It was really bad. And James just looked at me and just laughed. He was thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Which I think at that point really kind of cemented our friendship. And I realized, okay, he's down. He's down for whatever. That and um, there's a scene when we had to throw Ralph, Ralphie's torso, I guess, or head. I forget where, which went where. We were going to toss it off a cliff. And we went to a state park in New Jersey. And we rehearsed before the sun went down. It was a night shot, but we rehearsed it in you know, the last few moments of daylight. And we get to the edge and you know, we rehearse. There's a boat. There's a there's a lake or a river way down the bottom, and they were they were going to put a boat with someone with a camera there to get it coming down, seeing us. So we get to the we have to get to the edge of this cliff, and we rehearse it, and like we got to wait for now we got to wait for the sun go down, then we got to light it. And you know you're talking about a big outdoor. You want to really capture the scope of where we were. So it was a big light, big lighting setup, and took a long time. And we were bored, and we started, uh, I, went, I remember I, I was in Jim's trailer, and one of the writers, Mitchell Burgess, came in, and we started talking, and Jim opened a bottle of wild turkey, and we had a drink, 
And we were talking, and we had another drink, and a lot of time went by, and they came knocking, said we were ready to shoot, and that bottle was empty, and we were shit-faced. And so we wobble out to the edge of the cliff, and everyone all of a sudden realizes that we may very well fall off the cliff. So they had to chain us by the ankles to trees. So just in case when we threw this torso, which was in a bag or something, off the cliff, we weren't going to go along with it. And uh, they very discreetly hit it down the pant leg under some leaves connected to a tree. And that was a, that's a fun memory. Thank you for sharing it. What stands out to you the most about David Chase? Looking back. Oh, he's so funny. You know, he's really, really, really funny. And he likes to laugh. Sometimes it would be fun in, you know, in the writer's room, spitballing ideas, some of which, I, you know, I can't remember specifics or what, but sometimes you just come up with something that is just so ridiculous and hilarious that we would just laugh our asses off, you know, just imagining it. Because, you know, one of the things he always said was that, you know, because people would ask, well, what, what's the key to writing the show and what's the, where do you get your ideas and this and that? And, yeah, you know, of course, you, you're going to do research, figuring out, well, what does the mafia do? You have to know. They're in this business, they're in that, because it has to be somewhat realistic. But he would always say, at the end of the day, it's all imagination. And sometimes it would be, you know, you know, he could be very, very, very silly, you know, and be willing to be silly just to, you know, explore, uh, you know, ideas or comedic ideas. And, and uh, there's a, <laughs> there's a, the episode, um, the last episode I wrote was called Marco Polo, right? And mm -hmm. it was about this. Um, Hugh DeAngelis' 75th birthday. His jubilee, yeah. So there's a character called Dr. Fogoli who's like kind of like a... Not a real doctor. No, but he's like this... Like Kissinger. Yeah, he's, a, he's an educated, like kind of bit of a pretentious Italian-American, you know, who looks down on, you know, the crassness of Italian-American culture, you know, and has a little bit of a, you know, chip on his shoulder. And for a while we were thinking of having Dominic do it with like a goatee and like a hat or something. And we, you know, we would, I remember we just laughed and laughed. I don't know if we found it so funny, the idea of like, why not just have Dominic dress up and, you know, pretend to be, and he entertained that idea very seriously for a while. And it was Instead just, of getting an actor. Yeah. Got it. And he's like, why not? Why can't we do this? Yeah. Why, why shouldn't we just do what we want? It was just, you know, and just imagining, you know, that. And because Dominic's such a great actor, he probably could have pulled it off. But we, um, that was one of the examples of just the whimsy and whimsical, whimsical nature of sometimes, you know. And then like any writer's room, sometimes it would be very, you know, quiet and... <laughs> you know, and he's, you know, well, writing is very hard, you yeah. know, writing, you know, like, I mean, the book that I wrote took a couple of years time for the most part. I mean, I, I wouldn't write when I was off doing a job, but, you know, and some days it would whiz along and great and, you know, flow and you'd go home and you'd feel great about what you did. And some days it would be like a wall and nothing and horror of that you're worthless and you have no ability and you have no, you know, that's, that's, and I spoke to a lot of writers, some very well-known ones, and they all go through it. It's par for the course. You have above average cooking skills and, and actually <laughs> dominate the celebrity circuit. What's your, what's your signature dish? What can you make for your family that they'll just crush? 
I make a really good puttanesca, but I'm I'm really good at I'm really good at you know whatever's in the fridge, right? So you the know, ingredients that you have, yeah, or ingredients that don't belong, or ingredients that you know shouldn't really be in the fridge or there by accident, and figuring out something good to you know combine them into. That's that's my bigger skill. Who are you closest with from the show today? Uh, Sharon Angela, John Ventimiglia, and uh, Steve Sharippa. I'm going to say a name, and you say the first word that comes to mind. James Gandolfini. Generosity. David Chase. Brilliance. Drea De Matteo. Fierceness. Edie Falco. Truthfulness. Stevie Van Zant. Talent. Steve Sharippa. Kindness. David Proval. David Proval. That's great. We're, we're in the throes of Richie right now. Yeah, David, I, David and I did a movie in Portugal that John Ventimiglia was in and Sharon Angel called Cabaret Maxime that just kind of, it's a Portuguese movie really, but it's in English. And David was just so brilliant. Subtlety, I'd say, David Proval. That's a great word. That's a great way to describe him. Tony Sirico. Larger than life. What's your favorite show? Hmm, maybe the honeymooners. I mean, I mean, this is so bad for me to say this, and I really shouldn't, but I'm going to say it anyway. I don't think anything tops the Sopranos. My not so humble opinion. I don't. Be honest with you. Well, you're in the right room because <laughs> it's it's, it's, that, it's bad. that's a horrible thing to say for a show that I, you were on. But I really believe that I don't think anything tops it. I'll no, it actually you. what you said, what you're saying right now, actually validates this whole this culture of Sopranos that will not go away. There's still millions and millions of people that not only they're not thinking about the ending, they're actually rewatching the show because yeah. it, it, it's it's timeless. Yeah, it's a, it's a case study in timelessness. And I've been meeting a lot of younger people lately. Yeah, exactly. Um, who are watching it for the first time, and some of whom are, are interested in film, or, or some of them are not, but they they've just discovered it for the first time because they were too young during its initial run, and and it's seems to have a you know a relevance and a resonance and, a, and an impact, which is really cool. I think the music is one of the ties that bind it through generations as well, because people that love music will, you know, you can, yeah. it kind of just, it carries, it carries the weight of the show mm-hmm. through generations. That makes Johnny sense. Thunders. That's a good one. Can't put your arms around a memory. What's your favorite book? Of all time. If you want to do like a top three that come to mind, I'm not going to put you on the spot and make you commit to one book, but if there's two or three books that are just sort of like sitting on your heart right now. Invisible Man. By Ralph Ellison is one of the great, probably the greatest American novel. Tristessa uh, and Big Sur, by both by Jack Kerouac. Um, and let me see, Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, yeah. Was uh, Jack Kerouac influential on your discovery of Buddhism? It was, but, it, but I was, you know, uh, the first book on Buddhism I bought when I was 19 because of Jack Kerouac, but I had no... I was way too, pre, you know, it was premature. I couldn't understand. I bought the, I think it was a Diamond Sutra, and I had no conception of what it was, but it was something in the way he expressed it and wrote about it that inspired me. So he definitely was a... And, and Jack had a really very deep, profound knowledge of Buddhism and the Dharma. Um, if you read the scripture of the Golden Eternity, uh, it's... Now, 
after have studied Buddhism for a while, to really see how much he knew about it, you know. Uh, I think Kerouac's one of the real underrated writers of our time because he's known he's known for his, you know, uh, persona and this kind of, you know, this kind of libertine beat lifestyle, whatever that meant to people and whatever it inspired in people. But it re- he really was a writer. I mean, he had wrote a million words before I think he published his first book. He read, you know, he was one of the most voracious readers, but his the actual fabric of the prose is kind of uncanny in a way. And, you know, he's he, he's more known for this kind of improv... In some ways, similar to Cassavetes, this improvisational kind of free association style. But if you really look at a lot of the work, it uh, there's a depth and precision and skill that's, you know, phenomenal. What was the last thing you read? The last thing that I read? Recently. Uh... I'm reading one of Mishima's books right now. But the last thing I read was Kawabata's unfinished last book called Yasunari Kawabata is a Japanese writer. Won the Nobel Prize, I think, in the 60s or 70s. It's called Dandelions. His, his, uh, the most recent thing that was published. I read this book called, an, I think it's called An Ordinary House by a German writer named, I think his last name was Hermann. Uh, that takes place during World War II. It was tremendous, really kind of scary, and uh, you know deals with it, you know just the senselessness and inhumanity of, of war. I think that's called an ordinary house. It's really good. Do you go to bookstores like, all, can, all the time? Can you go without being disturbed all the time? What are one or two of your favorite bookstores? I do a podcast on bookstores as well, so it's kind of like a nice way for mm. me to like segue. Well, well, right here down the street, Book Soup is one of the great bookstores, and uh, you know, around. Um, I love uh, McNally Jackson in New York and uh, Three Lives in New York. Um, the Paper Hound in Vancouver is a really small bookstore, but a really incredibly curated one. I love that. That's what it's all I love about. City Lights. City Lights. Every time I go to San Francisco, I go to City Lights. That's one of my favorites. What else? That's great. You covered a lot. Yeah. So you hang out at bookstores. That's awesome. Oh, I, when I go on location, the first thing I look up are, you know, independent bookstores. Yeah. What are you most passionate about? You know, um, I mean, in terms of my own work, this the book, probably. I mean, I'm more, uh, I feel more proud of that than I think anything I've done. I mean, I, I, you know, I had a really great acting teacher. That also, Sharon Angela and John Dutton we all studied with a woman named Elaine Aiken. Alec Baldwin was in that class for a while, Sean Young and Lily Taylor, uh, Andrew McCarthy. A bunch of good actors came and went, you know. But we were there for quite a long time, the three of us, Johnny and me and Sharon. And when you do a scene, right, the first thing she'd ask you was, did you do what you set out to do? Not... How'd you feel? Did it feel good? Did you think you did a good job? Did you do a bad guy? This is the how you measure. And basically, what she was teaching was how to measure your art or whatever, your, your attempt at art. Or you, So it was like, did you do what you set out to do? Because you can't just make something good. You make what you make, whether it's going to be good or not or other people are going to like it. That's not up to you. But did you do what you set out to do? And a lot of the stuff that written or written directed and stuff to various levels i've felt that but with this book i really feel i did what i set out to do and for that i'm really proud of it finally any upcoming projects or things on your plate right now 
I noticed that you are in Escape at Danamora. Yeah. Is that how you say it? Danamora? Danamora, yeah. I've been watching it. I haven't seen the episode. Is it an episode with you? Is it out already? I'm in the finale. I worked with Ben Stiller, who's the director, but I played Governor Andrew Cuomo. So oh, awesome. I got to spend some time with him in New York. That's which very was cool. very interesting. So there's that. There's this movie I did in Portugal called Cabaret Maxime, which is a, an independent movie by a filmmaker named Bruno Dalmeida, who's a Portuguese filmmaker who, this is the third film that we've done with him. And by we, I mean... Ventimiglia and Sharon. I mean, a lot of the, my colleagues who I started with in acting class, I still work with today, you know. And That's special. Especially in theater and in independent film. And uh, um, so Cabaret Maxime, that, you know, as soon as we get a distributor in America, you'll see that. And uh, I did a movie called Primal with Nicolas Cage. Um, that'll probably be out this year. Before I let you get out of here, you said that Lou Reed's music has always been with you in your adult life. I think I'm quoting you. And you and got you through a lot of hard things, oh. uh, thanks to him. I just want to echo that sentiment, but to you. The character Christopher and the way you elegantly portrayed him has always been with me. And his story and your brilliant acting got me through a lot of things. So I feel very fortunate to be able to tell you that face-to-face. Mm. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, I told Lou that once. So I, hearing it from you to me means a lot. So it's, thank you. It's a hundred percent true. And Michael, this has been an honor and a privilege. Thank you. Same here. Thank I you. Enjoyed it very much. Uh,